0: facing all right we'll be in Ezra chapter 7 so if you have a bible device uh, the text will be on our screen as well in just a couple minutes when we read through this chapter uh, together but uh, would you just pray with me for a minute unless I ask for the spirit's help as we open up God's word and preach it father come we come humbly and yet with faith in our hearts asking for your help yet again Uh, Each time as we gather and we open up the scriptures, we realize how important it is for your spirit to give the aid that's needed in communicating the truths of your word, in hearing them and receiving them and applying them and causing these things to take hold in our hearts. So all this, we feel very dependent. This is not a speech to be listened to. There's something much more going on here, and so for this, we ask for the help of your Spirit, and specifically today, I ask that your Spirit would help spark, enliven, raise up our faith, our trust in you, the way we see and understand and respond to you, Lord, that faith would increase in our hearts because we see more of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We can learn a lot from the characters in the Bible. As you read through the Bible, it includes lots of people, stories, characters that show up in this long story, this long plan of God's redemptive grace. And so really what the Bible is about is really seeing the grace of God at work in people's lives. And so when you read through the Bible, we encounter a lot of characters, a lot of People in there, and sometimes they show up just in a genealogy. Sometimes they show up in sort of just a a very brief way. If you were to read through some of the Old Testament historical books, like Judges and Kings and Chronicles, you might read them if you're doing like a Bible reading plan, and you might say, "Oh man, it's it's kind of a blessing to all of a sudden get maybe a little bit of a story about one of these guys that led the people of Israel." But sometimes you just get a name and a date and a time. Whether there's a little bit or much in the Bible about a particular person, there is most often one thing that is always included about that person, whether or not they trusted the Lord. Sometimes just a name, date, this guy ruled, but usually, most often, some comment that states they trusted the Lord or they didn't now I don't know what your desire is for your life what you want as your epithet to be what you want said at your funeral what you want the summary of your life to be I know that many of us live life with some hope that our greatest achievement is going to be what we're known for so after we're dead and gone people will talk about some great achievement We also live, many of us, with a kind of fear that it might be our greatest failure. Our biggest mistake in life is what we might be known for. Well, humanly speaking, either of those might be true. But what I find as I read through the Bible is and what I want to communicate is that the divine perspective of our lives, regardless of our achievement, regardless of our failure the divine perspective of our lives will be summarized down to a simple statement about our faith. Did you believe in the Lord? Did you trust him as you lived your life? Or did you not? All of our lives will at some point reach that assessment. The most important thing, from God's perspective, from a biblical perspective, the most important thing about you, the most important thing about me, is whether or not we lived our lives trusting God. You could finish your life with a great achievement and not trust the Lord, and the divine assessment will be negative. You could live your life with great failures, great setbacks, losing more battles against your indwelling sin than winning, and yet still, if the assessment of your life is that you trusted the Lord, that's a good, divine assessment. Our text introduces us to a character named Ezra. Finally, we're in chapter 7, and we, we come into contact with actually the namesake of the book, Nothing has been mentioned about Ezra, even though his name is on the book. Now, in chapter 7, we're introduced to this person, this man. He's one of the key figures in the book and in this particular section of overall history of God's people. And we're given a fair amount of information about him. But what I want to focus on and what draws out from chapter 7 is Ezra's faith that assessment, that he in fact did trust the Lord. And so my aim, my hope, is that we would take an honest look at Ezra and we're just beginning a study. He will show up more in the in the weeks to come. But as he's introduced, that we would look at this man and we would be inspired and realize it's his faith that made him who he is. So Let's read chapter 7 together. Um, we'll take some time and read the entire chapter, so hang on, just be a little patient, it's a good story, there's good details in there, so let's just take take a few minutes together and read it in its entirety, you'll have to forgive me as I stumble through the first couple verses with a lot of strange names, but here we go, now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of... Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Merioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi and son of Buzi, son of Abishai, Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eliezer, son of Aaron, the high priest. This Ezra, this Ezra went up from Babylonia He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked. For the hand of the Lord, his God, was upon him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, the king of kings. To Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, peace. And now I make a decree that anyone of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem, may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. With all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia and with the free will offerings of the people and the priests, vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money, then, you shall, with all diligence, buy bulls, rams, and lambs, with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. And I, Artaxerxes, the king, make a decree to all the treasures in the province beyond the river. Whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, requires of you, let it be done with all diligence, up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers, I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Who wants to look at Ezra's faith in particular in this text? And the whys and the hows of his faith to inspire and encourage us because the most important thing about you, the most important thing about me is that we trust in the Lord. We're going to look at the source of Ezra's faith, secondly, the expression of it, and thirdly, the outcome of his faith. So let's begin. The first point is the the source of Ezra's faith What was it that caused Ezra's faith and the events that we read about in this chapter? Well, let me introduce this point by just a little bit of background about who was Ezra. He was the leader of phase two of the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the reestablishment of the temple. After 70 years of exile in Babylon, the construction team, phase one, made the journey and rebuilt the temple, and reestablished the city. This is about 60 years or so after that phase one, the construction E-team went out and built the building, and now phase two, team two, is coming in to continue the work. The whole endeavor from beginning to end was sponsored, actually, by the king, by the, by the leading king of the, of the dominant culture there. When they first went into exile, Babylon was ruling. And Babylon had this kind of philosophy about people that they conquered. Captivate them, capture them, and enculturate them. In other words, take them out of their culture, bring them into Babylon, teach them the Babylonian ways, enculturate them into the one main culture. And that was their philosophy of how they secured the future and how they secured the loyalty of the people that they conquered. Now Persia is in charge, and Persia has a little bit different philosophy. They say, let them stay and encourage their own culture. We love the diversity. Stay who you are, stay where you are. We'll actually fund it and encourage it. And their philosophy was, this is how we're gonna ensure our future peace, our future prosperity, and the loyalty of the people that we've conquered. They were convinced that they would actually benefit. They would benefit from the gods. In fact, we read it in our text as the king writes his letter and says, we want you to go and do this, and I'm going to fund the project for you so that we will have the favor of your God, so that we will not incur the wrath of your God. So go, be free, Jerusalem. Go, build your temple. Go, worship your God so that we will have peace in our kingdom ezra led phase two and phase two is about getting the temple up and functioning to full capacity ezra comes with an entourage of priests Levites, singers gatekeepers and temple servants ezra was a man of very high caliber was high up in government the king of Persia recognized him selected him he's got a big mission and he was the man we also have the credentials from the first couple verses he was in the line of Aaron the high priest so we have both from a divine perspective and from a human perspective Ezra's the man but as understandable as it was for him to be in this role and for the king to pick him And for him to be in the line of Aaron, the high priest, our text tells us a reason why it was him, why he was who he was, why he was the way he was, why he did what he did. And we get introduced to this wonderful phrase, the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. The first time this phrase shows up, but in Ezra and Nehemiah, this phrase gets used eight times, and it's not an unfamiliar phrase in the whole of the Bible to talk about the hand of the Lord. The source of his faith was that the hand of the Lord was with him, was upon him. It's an expression that the Bible uses to explain God's providential power at work to bring about the will of God in the world that we live in god uses his hand to bring it about it's what the theologians call anthropomorphism it's a human description of god using something that's very understandable about a human being to explain something that's difficult to understand about god we say god has a hand and it's with his hand that he does these things do we want to explain something about god that we cannot see We cannot really comprehend, and so we we create, there's created this human analogy, this comparison, and we say, God uses his hand to do this. Now, think about the hand, your hand, a hand, 27 bones from here out, numerous muscles, ligaments, tendons, veins, arteries nerves all working together to create this this one appendage that one greek philosopher called the instrument of all instruments this is what we use the 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 range and the dexterity and the things that that we can do with our hands the versatility and the usefulness the ability to grasp to hold to push to pull to spin to lift to take to give to feel to fashion to mold to gather to send to stir up to wave to point hand used to paint beautiful pictures Hand used to play beautiful music, hand used to accomplish great achievements, complex tasks. So, throughout the Bible, it talks about God's hand. It makes many references to how God uses his hand. God's hand is said to have created the world. It's God's hand that is said to sustain the world. With it, he feeds the animals and takes care of nature. It even says that he holds in his hand our very breath. Now, there's a picture that the Bible wants us to have. Now, I have a scene in the emergency room of somebody laying on an on a emergency cart, and somebody has one of those those big rubber balls with a mask over and somebody is squeezing it to force air into this person's lung and letting it go to expand to suck the air back out of their lung. So somebody is holding that person's breath in their hand. Now, think about this imagery. The Bible wants you to think about God like that. He's holding my very breath in his hand. His hand is controlling my breathing. It's his hand that's causing my diaphragm to move in and out, to draw the air in, to exhale the air out. God's hand, so versatile, so skilled, so useful, so well-suited to any and every minute task That needs to be done we think and we see god's hand behind it all in other words whatever needs to be done it's god's hand that is well equipped to get it done our text is telling us it states and it restates so that we're clear about the source behind it all why did the king choose ezra and grant him such sweeping support because the hand of the lord was upon the king. Why was Ezra able to rally the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers? Because the hand of the Lord was with him. Why did Ezra set his heart to study and to do God's word and to teach it to others? Because the hand of the Lord was with him. Now, imagine, I'm going to fix this thing once and for all. Imagine taking this phrase out of the chapter, And she didn't say anything about the hand of the Lord. And we read the chapter again, and we took out that phrase. And so then I have to stand up and preach a sermon and say, Artaxerxes was a really generous king. Ezra was a really great guy. He achieved much. Now you, you should be generous too. You should be great too. Now go out there and achieve great things. Be Be like Ezra. Be like our exerces. There we have it all. There's all the human agency. Come on, people. And that would be the worst sermon you ever heard. What a a lousy bowl of junk food to feed you this afternoon. But the text says great things are happening. Extraordinary things are happening. And let me explain to you why and how. It's because the hand of the Lord was at work in this situation. And that's what this text wants us to grasp. And that's what you and I need to see in our lives. And in the world that we live in, we need to be able to, by faith, recognize the hand of the Lord. At work. See it and cause it to elevate our faith. Not in ourselves, but our faith In the one whose hand is bringing it all about. Now, a caution don't misunderstand the phrase, the hand of the Lord. The chapter that we read is extraordinarily positive. I mean, everything is going great for this guy he's a golden boy, he sounds like he graduated top of his class, he's a great guy, he's doing great things, the king has given him all kinds of favor, you could get the impression that all the hand of the Lord does is clear away every obstacle out of our lives, push everyone out of the way, move us up to the top, give us everything we desire, and that's what the hand of the Lord does. But if you thought that, you would be sorely mistaken the hand of the Lord is much more versatile more diverse and able to do many more things than just those things although those things are things that the hand of the Lord certainly can do as the story of Ezra begins to unfold we can sort of piece together some other things about Ezra he certainly had to make a decision to leave what appears to be a very prosperous, very favorable, high-ranking position in Persia for a very unknown future. He had a four-month journey that was so dangerous to take Had he not been so braggadocious about how great God was and how good God's protection was, he certainly would have gone to the king and said, I need soldiers to go with us to protect us along the way. I mean, this is this is the the ultimate of you don't walk in that neighborhood at night. You don't take this path. It is dangerous. They knew it was dangerous. In fact, all reasonable knowledge would say, don't take this path unless you've got soldiers, unless you've got people to defend you, you bring your guns, you bring your swords, because we know, not if, when, there are dangerous bandits on this path. You will need protection. He had a dangerous journey, and then we find out when he arrives, and he's getting a sense of where the people are at, Uh, His his days, his job, his life, his future was filled with sorrow over sin, lots of correction, lots of confrontation, lots of repentance. We certainly will. We'll talk more about that in a couple weeks when we get two chapters away. But his life was no picnic. And the hand of the Lord is not merely just saying, okay, I'm going to clear all the trouble out of your life. I'm going to remove all the obstacles so you have a bed of roses to move forward through in your life. We need to see the hand of the Lord more broadly than just good things happen to me because the hand of the Lord is with me. Why are you here listening to me this afternoon? Why did you come to sit in this congregation and Why did you stand and sing? Why do you serve? Why do you give? Why are you paying attention right now? Why why do you believe? If you're here and you believe, why why, why do you believe? Why, Why did you repent? Because the hand of the Lord. Because the hand of the Lord is with you, upon you, at work. In your life, it is is the hand of the Lord that has brought this about. It's why you're here right now, even if you don't want to be here. In fact, you might even be a greater example of the hand of the Lord. God is doing far more in each of our lives than any of us can fully comprehend. But one thing the Bible seems to be committed to, to doing is moving us toward realizing that God's hand is at work right down to the details he's working to convince us of that by telling us you cannot take a breath except that the hand of the lord squeeze your diaphragm and let it go god's hand the why behind Ezra's faith why because God was at work second point the expression of his faith what happens and what is produced when the hand of the Lord is upon you what came out of the life where the hand of the Lord was at work there's one thing that God highlights about Ezra and there are a lot of things that certainly good things that could be said about Ezra like I said I'm sure he graduated top of his class. That he had an Ivy League education. He was high up with the king. He was a great scholar. He was a great leader. He was most likely quite well off living in Persia. But scripture doesn't highlight any of those things. God, our ultimate author of the Bible, is wanting to communicate something. And he gives us this wonderful statement, chapter 7, verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. I don't know if you have a life verse. Could I recommend Ezra 7, 10 as your life verse? If you already have a life verse, you could use a second one. If you have three, you could use a fourth one. Ezra 7.10 is a great life verse to ponder upon, to think about, and to apply to yourself. Here's the expression of this man's faith. God's hand was at work in his life, and here's what came out. He had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach it. Let's just break it down, spend a couple minutes on that statement. Three things about Ezra's relationship to God's word. It was in his heart. He had set his heart to study. Okay, so this is not the little boy whose parents made him take piano lessons. This was not the guy who said, Dad said I had to study theology. I really would love to be an architect, but Dad made me go to theology school, and now I have to study my Bible all the time. It's like, it's not one of those stories. This was in his heart. This was his desire. He saw something in God's word that captured him and pulled him into it, toward it. Constantly. John Piper wrote a, a two part, two volume set of books about his relationship to God's Word. And in the introduction to the first one, which was called The Peculiar Glory, he he gave an illustration and spoke about God's word being like a, like a window, like living in the Swiss Alps, and there's this grand window, and the word of God is the, is the window pane, the window that he looks through to see the glory on the other side. That's how God's word functions. Through God's word, I am able to see the glory of God. That's the concept, and here's what he writes. My seven decades of experience with the Bible have not been mainly a battle to hold on. They have been a blessing of being held on to, namely by beauty, that is, by glory. I've stood in front of this window all these years, not to protect it from being broken or because the owner of the chalet told me to, but because the glory of the Alps on the other side. I am captive of the glory of God revealed in Scripture. There are reasons deeper than my experience for focusing on the glory of God, but I cannot deny what I have seen and the power it has had. I think Ezra had some of that going on in his heart. He saw something in the law of God. He could see the glory of God in it, And it filled his heart and produced in him a desire to know it, to study it. I'll never forget a visit at the optometrist when my optometrist was sharing his testimony with me. And I'm looking through these things and he comes around and gets in my view. And he's describing how when he read the Bible and he says, this book knew me. This book knew all who I was. And so he's, he's reading the Bible for one of the first times, and it's just stunning him because there's something different about this book. I remember the early years of my own Christianity, just as a young teenager and just captivated by the Bible. It's like this, this book is different from any other book. It's talking to me. It's God behind the book speaking to me. It, it knows me. It sees me. It's like this is something altogether different. Let me read to you a little bit of Psalm 119. A few verses that capture some of this. Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Oh, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word deal bountifully with your servant that I may keep live and keep your word open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law I'm a sojourner on the earth hide not your commandments from me my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times do you hear it the psalmist was captured captivated by the things that God had said, what was in the book. And so that's the first aspect of Ezra's heart about God's word. It was was in his heart. His heart was captured. Secondly, it was also comprehensive in the sense that he said, I had a heart to study it, but I also had a heart to do it, and I also had a heart to teach it. There's a There's a comprehensive love for God's word that includes this three-part dimension to it. First, to read and to study, to know. I I, want to drink it up. I'm hungry to know who God is, how his grace works. But also, secondly, to respond by doing it, by living out what it says. And that followed by a desire to like, and I want to talk about it to others. I want to include it in my communication. I get concerned when I perceive and pick up about someone who's fascinated with theological things but seems uncaring or oblivious about applying them and living them out some people just I just I love to study theology and it's great and I read all the books and I love to talk and I love to debate which is all wonderful and well and good but there are times when I see that and perceive that and and as soon as the conversation moves to applying it that person falls away falls out I, I didn't really want to be in this conversation I just wanted to talk the theology. This well-rounded love for God's word recognizes what it is. God's word comes from the heart, the mind, the mouth of God, and it comes to us with this authority, and it lays a claim on our lives. He spoke what he spoke for a reason. He spoke it with intent to produce something in your life, And in my life. So to read it and to be oblivious or ignorant or deny or resist the claim that the words are are wanting to take on our lives. Is not to have a genuine love. Not this kind of love. Not this kind of hand of God work of the spirit. About God's word. We need to study it for what it is. It is God's word. And so hearing but doing falls short. James, the epistle of James makes it clear that this is an illegitimate faith who wants to hear but is unwilling to do. I love knowing I don't like applying. He's not saying I question your faith. He's saying your faith is illegitimate. It's worthless. It's not the same thing. It's not the right thing. It's not the correct thing. It's not the thing that the hand of the Lord in his redemptive grace brings about. And he taught. Now, Ezra was a great teacher. In fact, Jewish historians call him the second Moses. He went down in Jewish history as a a great teacher, and I know that teaching is a gift. And many of you have the gift of teaching, and it's a remarkable gift to see it in operation. But I think there's something broader for us to realize in Ezra's teaching that this full dimension of genuinely having the Spirit of God work in your heart, drawing you with a love for his word, a surrendered heart to apply it and to do it, also includes a desire to speak it to share it, to include it. This kind of person that we're looking at, like you can't shut them up about what God has to say. When you talk with them, they're not trying to avoid including God and his word in the conversation. They're always trying to find a way to include it. It's part of the way they think. It's part of the way they live. It's part of the way they speak. This is the man we're looking at, Ezra. He had it in his heart to study, to know it. He had it in his heart to do it. It was was all about, okay, when God speaks, that means there's only one reasonable response, that we would act according to his word. And that overflowed into, and I want to talk to you about it. I want to tell you about it. I don't want to just go through life with you being unaware of this there's one more thing that our text tells us about Ezra and his relationship to the scriptures it says he was a scribe who was skilled in the law of Moses he was skilled Derek Kidner in his commentary explains that the word skilled in Hebrew is literally the word rapid he writes this, suggesting a quickness of grasp and an ease of movement amid this complex material, which was the fruit of the devoted study. In Isaiah 16:5 uses the same word, translating it swift. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks judge justice and is. Swift to do righteousness. In other words, Ezra studied his Bible enough that he knew the words of God well enough to handle them well. He was ready, he was swift to put these words into practice, into usefulness, into conversation. He had, he had a reservoir built up Of lots of study that made him ready and able to handle it, to use it rightly, to apply it rightly to a given situation. Now, this is a skill that takes time. Now, maybe you've been in a situation, maybe you're in a community group discussion, and some issue comes up, and somebody throws out a scripture and it doesn't fit. Maybe you were the one that threw out that scripture and is like, yeah, that doesn't really apply to this. Ezra studied enough. He knew this aspect of God's word that applies to this aspect of life and this aspect of God's word. That works in this kind of situation. And so the person who is downcast and depressed, these are the words. To the, to the person that is boastful and self-righteous, these, these are the words that apply. And so he he knew how to handle God's word. There was an ease, there was a quickness, a movement like like a like a skilled musician can sit down with a with a piece of music, and they have practiced and rehearsed so much that they have such a, a skill level that they just they do it with ease. As opposed to someone who has to think note by note, measure by measure, thinking through all the detail of it. It is something that we grow in and we mature in and it comes. A skill developed over time. Proverbs 25 says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Again, Derek Kidner, he writes, he comments on this proverb. He says, now the whole simile is of uncertain interpretation. In other words, we're not really sure what they're talking about here. The whole simile is of uncertain interpretation, but at least its components carry associations of attractiveness, value, and craftsmanship. You know it when you see it. You know it when you hear it. You know it when you experience a word fitly spoken someone brings the text someone brings up the scripture it is God speaking by his spirit into that situation it's a it's a remarkable encounter to have God speak and for it to be a word fitly spoken just a little note kind of an aside here Kidner makes this comment he says incidentally The present verse shares none of the doubts of some modern criticism over the antiquity of the authority of the law, nor does it see Ezra as a reviser or a compiler. He's concerned with it as something given. What, what What he's saying there is Ezra did not study his Bible with his own personal bias and interpretation. He was not trying to rework the scriptures he was not trying to handle them in a way that fit with the way he wanted them to be. He went to the scriptures as it was, given, something given. God spoke it. God laid it out. And so I approach it like that, with that kind of humility. It's, it's not for me to say, well, I like this and I don't like that. This works. This doesn't work. I don't think that makes sense. I'm not buying that. I'll accept this. I'll not accept this. He says, no, Ezra's approach was completely different. Ezra's approach to the Scripture was, it has been given, and I need to understand what has been given. I may not understand it well at first. It may take some time. I may go years with mysterious questions on my mind about what does this actually mean. Nevertheless, I never lose that approach to Scripture. It's come from God, and I trust God with what he said. I may have to strive to understand it better. The truth of the matter is the things we struggle with most are the things we understand just fine. Those are the things that are the most difficult of the scriptures to swallow, not necessarily the the mysterious questions. Ezra studied, applied, and taught it as clearly as he could understand what was actually given to him. And it's God's hand that instills this into the hearts of his people, a love for his word. Last point, third point, the outcome of Ezra's faith. What's the purpose behind God's hand at work and our devotion to God's word? What, where does this all lead to? Where these two components come together, one first, the other following as, a, as an expression of it, to what end? Maybe you notice sort of the voice change as we were reading through the chapter. In the last two verses of this chapter, in verse 27, it's all of a sudden Ezra's voice that comes. So we're reading the letter that Artaxerxes wrote to Ezra, and then when we hit verse 27, Ezra steps to the microphone and closes the chapter with a doxology, a statement of praise to give glory to, God and and in this doxology, in this little comment that he closes up this chapter with, he drops the comment that states what it's all about. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord. There it is, there's the reason behind it all. Here's the why God's hand moved. At the very outset, here's why it moved to produce in him a love for God's word, a desire to apply it, and a desire to teach it, so that the house of the Lord might be beautified. To beautify the house of the Lord. To make God's house all that it was meant to be. All that it could be. All that it should be. To add the glory and the beauty to the house of God. The Construction team came and built the house. 60 years later, Ezra shows up with, with, with the band, the worship team, the setup crew, the servants, the, the greeters at the door. So you, you can imagine, so this, is the, this is the house of the Lord. Now you can imagine all, all of you live in a house, an apartment, a house, something. But, but just to have a house, just a building, just a, a roof over your head means very little, very little glory, not very beautiful. might be a beautiful house, but it's not beautiful yet. Ezra comes with a lot of money and furnishings and gold and, and silver and, and, and people, and so now the house gets filled up with its furniture. It's, it's, it's phase two to make the place functional, the way it's designed to function. And so you might have a beautiful house, lots of square footage to touch a Southern California nerve. You might have a house full of beautiful furniture, very functional, very pleasing to look at. But you still might have a house that's filled with strife and tension. People angry at each other, hating each other, scheming against one another. We'll be there in a couple of weeks because when Ezra gets settled in, he starts realizing what's going on in the hearts and lives of the people. He realizes now here's the real problem. Here's the real issue. But we're in a process. The house is built. Now the house is getting adorned, beautified, gold and silver, the knickknacks, the wall hangings, everything that makes the house beautiful. And the people, the, the chairs are getting filled, the choir is beginning to sing, things are beginning to happen. The hustle and the bustle of a of a service is beginning to take place, and you can feel it in the room, you can feel it in the temple. It's all starting to come together. All the components are there now, and the thing is beginning to look beautiful. It's getting Adorned. The Bible uses the word adorned. We don't use the word adorned much. But uh, I'm the father of four girls. I was somewhere in the mix of wedding preparations for four weddings. Uh, And so it is all about adornment. Now, nobody ever used the word adornment. But months before, dress. Dress. Huge. Shop for dress. Catalogs fittings, shoes, just the shoes alone, huge issue. Close to the wedding, who's going to do my makeup? Who's going to do my hair? Who is going to adorn me for the day? All the adornments, which we never called adornments, all about beautifying. Making beautiful, making the most of this. This is what God is talking about. This is like what what God had in his mind in gathering up all this money, all these big pots of gold and silver and and food and sacrifices and everything, because I'm going to adorn my house. I'm going to make it glorious. I'm going to make it beautiful. It's going to be filled with people. It's going to be filled with music. It's going to be filled with voices. It's going to be glorious. Read you some more verse. Isaiah 60. Some things are going to sound familiar in here. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you. Didn't we sing this earlier this afternoon? The Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. The nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see they all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Okay, think of Ezra's entourage. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you and young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news. The praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar. And I will beautify my beautiful house. There it is. There's the why. There's the outcome. There's the desired end. God saying, why am I doing it all? Why is it all happening? Why is it happening in you? Why is it happening in us? Because. The objective is that my plan is I'm going to beautify my house. When I read Isaiah 60, of course, couldn't help think about Christmas and the wise men coming, bearing these gifts of frankincense and we're bringing these treasures. So now we know, we look back, okay, this baby is born, but this turns out to be the true temple has come into the world, the real place, the person where God and man can meet together, and they bring these gifts, they bring these riches to beautify this new temple. From the temple to Christ, from Christ to the church. In Ephesians chapter 5, if you're a husband, it's a familiar verse. We go there often to learn how to be good husbands where Paul gives instructions to families. And we read that familiar verse in Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Oh, husbands, how many times have we gone over that? Are you kidding me? That's a tall order how do we do that how do we figure that out we're we're going we're looking for some practical advice I'm trying to get along with my wife trying to learn how to love her trying to learn how to treat her well what do i do okay okay husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her almost as soon as paul gets the words out it seems like he gets a little lost a little caught up in his own illustration here where husbands is like, could, yeah, but what do I say to her? And what, what do I do on Tuesday? And how do, how do I you know, fix this? And, and, and so he says, oh, that he, that he might, like Christ, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Oh, yeah, again, in the same way, husbands, love your wives like that. Like he gets caught up because that's the vision, because that's what it's all about. It's what the marriage is really about to reflect. We're just living out little shadows of this great plan of what God is doing. And what is God doing? Oh, he's beautifying his bride, he's adorning his bride, he's gathering his people together, and he's working by his spirit. His hand, his versatile, useful hand, is at work in each one of your lives to bring about. A house of God that is adorned and beautiful. The people of God. The people of God. Loving God. Worshiping God. Loving one another. Knowing their purpose in Christ. Knowing who they are in Christ. Living in this world as a witness, as a testimony to the onlooking world around. What is God doing? He is adorning us. Did you know that? Do you know what is God doing in your life? You're wondering, did you come in with that question? Lord, I, don't, I can't figure out, I'm not sure what you're doing in my life. Let me explain what God is doing in your life. He's adorning you. He's adorning us. What is he doing with us? Why this? Why here? Why now? Why all these things? Oh, well, it is God's hand at work making something Glorious, out of you, out of me, out of us, together. I'll close. Worship team can make their way up. Your faith, friends, is the most important thing about you. Your life will not, from God's perspective, be summarized down to your greatest achievement, nor will it be summarized down to your greatest failure, there will be an assessment of your life and of my life and of our lives together that will in some way simply answer the question, did you, did we trust the Lord? My aim, I believe the aim of this chapter was to so. Lift up the glory of God high enough in such a way that would captivate and capture your faith so that you would trust the Lord more when we leave than when you came. To stir up, elevate your confidence in God. To see that it's God's hand at work in your life. Not that you would change it, that you would trust it and know that it is God at work. In keeping with that, I'd like to close with reading a little bit. A few weeks ago, I pulled Augustine's Confessions off the shelf and was spending a little time in this old book. And as I was coming back over and over this paragraph, I thought, I'd like to close this sermon with reading this to you. Augustine writes, what then is the God I worship? He can be none but the Lord God himself, for who but the Lord is God? What other refuge can there be except our God? You, my God, are supreme, utmost in goodness, mightiest and all-powerful, most merciful and most just, You are the most hidden from us and yet the most present among us, the most beautiful and yet the most strong, ever enduring and yet we cannot comprehend you. You are unchangeable and yet you change all things. You are never new, never old, and yet all things have new life from you. You are the unseen power that brings decline upon the proud. You are the ever active yet always at rest. You gather all things to yourself, though you suffer no need. You support, you fill, and you protect all things. You create them, nourish them, and bring them to perfection. You seek to make them your own, though you lack for nothing. You love your creatures, but with a gentle love. You treasure them, but without apprehension. You grieve for the wrong, but suffer no pain. You can be angry and yet serene. Your works are varied, but your purpose is one and the same. You welcome all who come to you, though you never lost them. You are never in need, yet are glad to gain, never covetous, yet you exact a return from your gifts. We give abundantly to you so that we may deserve a reward, yet which of us has anything that does not come from you. You repay us what we deserve, and yet you owe nothing to any. You release us from our debts, but you lose nothing thereby. You are my God, my life, my holy delight. But is this enough to say of you? Can any man say enough when he speaks of you? Yet woe betide those who are silent about you. For even those who are most gifted with speech cannot find words to describe you. I must have read this a half a dozen times in the last couple weeks, and each time it just took the faith in my soul and just pushed it up a little higher, a little higher each time. Because we have a great, awesome God Who works with a mighty hand in the details and intricacies of our lives and he's worthy of our praise and who can help us except the lord who can save us except the lord and he can and he will let's stand